gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. This morning, I would like to declare a mighty and wondrous reality. I'd like to declare a mighty and wondrous reality, and it is this, that from the beginning of time, God has had a purpose and a zeal to redeem people from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language. This mighty reality that from the beginning of time, God has had a purpose and a zeal to redeem people from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language. Let me say this another way. 1 Timothy 6:15 to 16. We know that our God, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. He is the ancient of days. He is the one who in Isaiah 6, the seraphim and the cherubim fall down and worship and cry out, holy, holy, holy. Jesus, the Son of God, who one day enthroned in heaven with all the nations around his throne singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. This God who holds creation together by his very being, his very being gives being to all life. This is our great God. And in accordance with his being as a great God, he is too majestic to be worshipped by only one nation. He is too wonderful to be praised in only one language. He is too beautiful to be represented by only one skin color. Too full of love to restrict himself to one people. Our God deserves to be worshipped by all the nations by pure being of who he is. He wants to save and adopt children from every corner of the earth. The great shepherd will not rest until all of his sheep are brought and have been gathered into his fold of love. Our God is so great and so full of glory that the only thing that is worthy of that glory is that if all of creation is indeed praising his name as they ought. So, it's a pretty grand statement I've made. Is it true according to Scripture? Does the Scripture support this grand statement that I have just declared? I'd like to take a few moments this morning and walk through some passages in the Old Testament and note three key themes in biblical theology. Biblical theology is that discipline that basically traces the unfolding of the plan of God's redemption across time and space, being able to see how God has revealed himself and looking at how Scripture talks about it and together forming a clear picture of God's heart, mission, and value. So as we look at the Old Testament, here's three themes to be aware of. These aren't the only ones, but three key ones. Number one, his purpose. 
And that throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's purpose is to bring his glory to the nations, to testify of his glory to the nations. How many times in the Old Testament do you see phrases like, for his name's sake, or that the nations might know, or that Egypt might know that there is only one God and his name is Yahweh? Another theme to be aware of, so the first one is God's glory to the nation. That's his purpose and desire of his heart. A second theme to be aware of is his salvific universality. Now, that's a mouthful. Okay. But here's what I mean. Second theme is that God's invitation for an unto salvation is universal. Salvation is faith in Yahweh. Habakkuk 2 says that the just shall live by faith, that Moses believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So faith becomes the avenue into knowing and salvation in God. It is not to become an Israelite or to become or do certain religious things. It is entrance into salvation by faith. Now, don't misunderstand me. In the Old Testament, the context of walking out that faith was under the Mosaic law and in the people of Israel. Just like today, the context of walking out our faith in Jesus Christ is to be the church of the living God. So, number one, God's glory to the nations. Number two, a universal invitation by faith. Number three, that God uses an instrument of witness, an instrument of witness And in the Old Testament, it's the chosen people of Israel, that they are God's instrument of witness, God's grace and means to be able to declare his glory to the nations. But make no mistake, God's desire and his motives are doxological, glory-based. Now, when I say the glory of God, here's what I mean. The glory of God is the sum of all of his perfections. The glory of God is the sum of all of his perfections. He is glorified in his power and his his infinite knowledge. He is glorified in his strength, in his infinity, in his justice, in his love and his mercy. His glory is the sum of all of those perfections. And perhaps the pinnacle of his perfection is his holiness, his uniqueness, that there is no God like him that there is no one that stands beside him. He alone is Yahweh. Okay, let's look at the Old Testament though. Do we see God's heart for the nations, his desire to demonstrate his glory to the nations through the Old Testament? Well, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse two through three. So here's what's going on. God has called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. This is some 2,000 years before the time of Christ. He has called him out to be the progenitor of a people, the Israelite nation, through whom God wants to channel his blessings. And this is the promise he makes to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So God's going to bless. He's chosen. He's chosen an instrument through which he wants to channel his blessing. And then it says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very beginning, right close to the very beginning of creation, the first one called out by God for mission 
is not only for his family or for the people that will come from him, but for all the nations. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 to 6. So we fast forward several hundred years where we've moved beyond the nation of Israel being established. They were in Egypt. They've been delivered out of Egypt. They're now standing before Sinai, before God, where a covenant is being forged. And God declares this to the nation of Israel. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. Wait, do you hear that? God declares total sovereignty and ownership over all the earth and by implication all the peoples therein. He is not a territorial God that says this little patch of earth belongs to me. He says, no, it all belongs to me. And then listen to what he says next. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now what is a priest? A priest is one who acts on behalf of people to God. So they act on behalf of people to God, interfacing and demonstrating to people the glory of God and to have understanding of how they may have relationship with God. So at Israel's covenant inauguration at Sinai, the purpose of their being is to be the instrument of God's blessing, continuing to channel that which the promise was originally given to Abraham. Okay, the scope, the nations. Psalm 60, excuse me, Psalm 67, verse three through four. Now note this, this is a Psalm, an Israelite, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who himself understands the true purpose of Israel. And this is what he writes in Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The psalmist understands that the blessings of God are not only for Israel, but for the nations. Speaking of the usage of the Psalms, Dr. Robert Martin Ackert of Geneva says, the sole purpose of the writers of the Psalms is to praise the God of Israel. Yahweh deserves the praise of the whole creation. This is the thought that is voiced in more than one Psalm. It is not only the nations that are to be summoned by the faithful among the chosen people, but also the heavens, the earth, the rivers, and even the sea must also applaud the God of Israel. It is by reason of their belonging to the realm of creation. Remember God said all the earth is mine. It is by reason of their belonging to the realm of creation and not because they are just simply called to Israel's faith as a nation, but it's because they belong as part of creation that the heathen, heathen are called to glorify God. Psalm 86, eight to nine. There is none like you among the gods. You see that uniqueness again? There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come. Okay, wait, stop there. Psalm 86. The psalmist understands that there is a point of redemption where God is going to ingather the nations. It's not just for Israel. He sees something bigger at play. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. 
Okay, let's fast forward from the Exodus to Sinai, now several hundred years, looking at where? The building of the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 43, here's King Solomon. It has been set up by his father David. Several generations have passed since, since Sinai, and he is now standing there before the people. The temple has been built in all of its glory and all of its radiance, and this is the prayer of dedication by King Solomon. Here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according for all which the foreigner calls to you. In order, in order, causal statement, purpose statement. Here's the purpose for why the temple, why we are doing what we're doing. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel that they may know. Purpose statement. Purpose so that the nations may know. Purpose statement that this house that I have built is called by your name. So even the building of the temple has a missional purpose. The temple was not just there to affect the ceremony and salvation of the Israelites. It was meant to be a beacon that radiated the uniqueness of Yahweh to the nations and the nations would be gathered in and Solomon's prayer is may all the nations know who you are, Yahweh. May they know and be saved. May they fear your name. May they love your name. 1 Kings eight fifty nine to 60, Solomon continues and again he says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 21, again, let's fast forward a little bit. Now we have the prophet Isaiah who's often known for his speeches and sermons on judgment. But woven in there, there are also these themes of redemption. And in verse 21, it says, remember, he's speaking to the Israelites and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. If you're an Israelite, here's what you're hearing. Are you talking about our mortal enemies, the ones who enslaved us? The ones who hated God? that God has a purpose to redeem them. These are the Egyptian peoples that not only at the Exodus, but during the periods of the kings and right up into the New Testament, they are making incursions along the Via Maris, up into the plains of Sharon, up into the valley, the Jezreel Valley, all the way up to Megiddo. They are constantly trying to exert dominion over the Levant, over the Israeli stronghold. The Israelis hate the Egyptians, and the Egyptians hate them. But God says, your enemies, I'm going to turn into my people. I'm going to gather them in. And not only them, Isaiah 19, verse 25, blessed be Egypt, my people. Okay, hold on again. God, wait. We're your people. Not them, we. But God says, no, I've got a plan. You are the olive tree of blessing, but I'm going to be grafting in peoples to partake in this blessing. And the Egyptians who once hated you, they're going to be your brothers. I'm going to graft them, and not only the Egyptians, but Assyria, the work of my hands, some of the most violent, hated people, but even the worst of the worst, I am going to jump in their path, redeem them, and graft them in, and they're going to sing praises to Yahweh. 
You know what this tells me? God's grace and power is beyond anything we can think of. And that we have a God that is pleased to reach down even to what's raging in Gaza and Israel. Do you believe that God can reach down into a Hamas terrorist cell and jump in the path of one of those terrorists and redeem them and graft them into the blessing and say once was an enemy, now a child of God? If you don't believe that, your view of salvation is woefully too small. Because if God can save a sinner like me and like you, he can save them. And he saved the apostle Paul, who was Saul, who ravaged the church and hated God and persecuted his people. But God said, no, you're going to be mine. And he jumps in the way of Saul and says, Saul, you're going to be Paul. You're going to be my instrument to the nations. God is making himself known. He wants his glory to be known. He wants us to taste and see his glory. Isaiah 42, verse 5 to 8. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth that comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. This is who our God is. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Again, mission of witness, instrumentality of channeling the blessing of God's glory to the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from prison those who sit in darkness. Verse 8. Here's kind of the key point. Here's the fulcrum upon which everything turns, including the actions of God. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. I will not share my glory. My glory does not belong to Buddha, Allah, even to Mary, his mother, in Roman Catholicism. He shares his glory with no one. He alone is God. I am God. I will be glorified. The sum of my perfections will be known among the nations. Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, when the, when the, the Israelites are being brought out of Egypt, it says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Moses said to the people of Israel in Exodus 8, I want you to know that there is no God like our God. He is utterly unique and perfect, and the sum of his perfections are glorious and unlike any other. And he deserves all the glory. And God says, I give my glory to no other. What this tells us is that God's purpose himself is doxological, glory-based. He acts for his own glory. He pursues the nations so that his glory might be known. Now, again, you may say, okay, hold on, wait a minute. That sounds awfully self-serving, selfish, prideful. Let me help maybe to walk out why God's glory is imperative, why he cannot share it unless he deny himself, okay? His very character demands that he not share his glory and his very being compels him to only act in perfect ways. Okay, let me explain. 
He will not share his glory, for that would be untrue about what is true. And since God is true and can only speak truth, he cannot share his glory. Now you're thinking, I still have no idea what you just said. Tangent for just a moment. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we have a God in whom there is no shadow of turning and he speaks only truth? He never lies. He only speaks what is in fact true. He only acts in a way that is true and he only acts in a way that is absolutely perfect. Now you may say again, what's perfect about Ukraine, Gaza, and Israel? Brother and sister, just because we can't see the perfect ways of God doesn't mean that they are less true than in fact they are. In fact, I would argue that if God displayed his perfections only in a perfect environment, that would limit their display. The fact that he is able to act perfectly and be perfect and be truthful and unstained from evil while at the same time stewarding the utmost of travesties in the world fully declares and shows just how great our God is. Now, back to my statement. He can only speak truth. So, to share his glory would be to declare that something else is worthy and holy enough to partake in what he himself shares in. But since God alone is worthy, holy, and glorious, and he will always only speak the truth to you, he is saying, I'm telling you, I cannot share my glory because there is no one glorious and worthy enough because there's no one else that is God. I am only God. There is no one else. Matter of fact, the greatest love that God can declare is that he alone is worthy. For only God then can grant life. His desire for his glory is a statement of truth that in God alone is salvation found. A less than perfect zeal for his own glory would be to imply that there are other things more important than God. Thus leading people to seek things other than God, thus leading people to destruction. God is the sum of all perfection. For him to say anything and to seek anything other than that would be to deny his own character. A couple of summary statements. God is glorious. He is perfect. And it's also important to understand that whether or not the nations sing his glory, he remains undimmed in his glory. His glory is not dependent upon our singing. But I also want to add, he sure enjoys it. God desires his glory to be known, the sum of all of his perfections. This desire is pure love and grace. He is undimmed in his glory. The fact that he wants to share it, he doesn't need it. We don't contribute to it. He wants to share it simply so that we can taste it and participate in who he is. God can only do what is perfect, thus perfection requires the restoration of the nations and all of creation so that everyone and everything can sing and enjoy his glory. 
Okay, therefore, God is going to pursue the nations. He will be glorified. It is part of his being. You must understand that God's heart to pursue, his zeal to redeem, is not just something where he goes, oh, that's a nice thing to do. It's his very character and his nature that compels him to want to share himself and to draw in the nations. Malachi 1.11, for the rising, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And how will people enter into this glory? By doing a whole bunch of religious things? No. Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith, believing in who God is and what he has done. So in these verses, what have we seen? All of these passages. Snippets that show God's zeal for his glory. To invite people in to believe in who he is. And his desire to use the instrumentality of a particular people to channel his blessing to the nations. Okay, what about the New Testament though? I must say that building a missionary theology is a lot easier out of the New Testament. Because we have the book of Acts. It's an entire book that chronicles the early going efforts of the church to bear the glory of God to the world. There's many examples of missionary theology bearing God's glory in action. But let's just note the continuity of the Old Testament, specifically in Christ. Okay. So we have Yahweh who enters into time and space to select a people for himself, to make a way for them to be able to have a relationship with him through the law and the ceremony in the temple. He comes into time and space to show himself, to declare who he is. In the New Testament, Yahweh now comes in the flesh, in his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus the Son of God comes into the world. And you know what I find amazing is that Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world, takes on flesh. We're, we're going to be celebrating Christmas in just a few months. Matter of fact, I can't believe it's already November. Can you believe that? And then it was like 50 degrees this week and it's going to be 80 degrees this week. I mean, come on, Lynchburg, decide. Is it fall? Is it winter? Is it summer? God, give us good weather. We just complain, don't we? I mean, at least me, I don't know. You too, to be honest. All right, right. As we think about God coming, where was I going? Into the world. So it's November, December, Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation. God comes in the flesh. And who are among the first people to recognize who he is? Some wise men from the east. Within his early years, these wise men come and they recognize who this child is. The ingathering of the nations has begun anew. And who are these wise men from the east? Most certainly from Iran and Iraq, modern day. Isn't that an incredible thought? That some of the first to worship the newborn baby were Iranians, Iraqis of our modern day, Persians, men from the east and the latter. So he comes into the world and he dies on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? It's not something that just was an accident. He came specifically to bless the nations, to satisfy the law, to pay for the debt of sin, to stand in our place, to justify us and make us righteous that whoever believes in him by faith, remember that in the Old Testament? Same theme, by faith, 
Now the universal call, by faith, all who and any who believe in him by faith will be saved. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he yields up his spirit and says, it is finished. Who is the first person that believes by faith that this Jesus is the son of God? You know who it is? A Roman centurion. He lifts up his eyes and says, truly this was the son of God. First Gentile. Moments earlier, the first Israelite. The thief on the cross. He came to his people, but not only for his people. Jesus dies on the cross. And then in his final instructions, after he raises again, as he stands on Mount Arbel, looking over the Sea of Galilee and gives the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am God. Now go, make disciples of all nations. Bear my glory to the nations. You are to be my chosen people, an instrument to channel the blessings that are in Christ to the nations. Do you see the continuity? See the continuity of God's redemptive plan? That in the Old Testament instrument of witness was Israel, the chosen people, brokered at Sinai, but at the cross... Jesus brokers a new covenant and chooses a new people, the church. And the church has now become the instrument of God's witness. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, the perfections, the glories of him. Do you see the continuity again with Exodus 19.5? At Sinai, Israel, you're going to be my instruments of witness. At the cross, the church, you are going to be a kingdom of priests now. Go. Go to the nations. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in Acts 2, who are among the first to hear and who are among the first to believe? Acts 2, verse 9 to 11. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. Brothers and sisters, Arabians. Before the Arabs heard the call of Muhammad, 600 years after this point, they first heard the call of Yahweh that says, I want you, my brother and sister Arabs, to be my people. Wow. Wow. God is calling people to himself. Even as we look at 1 Timothy, we've been studying through it. 1 Timothy is hyper-conscious of this mandate upon the church. That is why Paul is writing to Timothy and is so concerned about being a healthy church because the church is the instrument of God's blessing and glory to the nations. Even if you look at 2 Timothy and you look at all the places that Paul mentions, he talks about Galatia, Dalmatia, Ephesus, Troas, Corinth, Miletus, do you think bearing the glory of God to the nations is on Paul's heart even as he instructs us to appoint elders, to have deacons, men and women, stick close to the gospel? 
how we love one another because you are the instrument and the channel of God's blessing to the nations. You are the, the church, the people of God with whom God bought with his own blood. God will make known his glory among the nations and the church is his chosen instrument. Now, the question practically then is what is the task before us then? Where is the glory of God yet to be seen? Whom has yet to hear of the name of Jesus? We know that anthropologists have delineated that there are 17,291 people groups in the world. What's a people group? Uh, we talk about that a lot, but what is a people group? It's a people who have a shared identity, usually as a result of language, religion, ethnicity, residence, locality, class, situation, but they're a distinct group. It's like you Texans are a distinct group, right? Not really, but I was born in Houston, so I can say that. There we go. I've also learned that, you know, even in America, again, we have, the, we have these distinct groups. But really, there's just the American people group, then you have different people groups that are here, of course, represented, and people groups around the world. But of these 17,000, 7,253 of them are unreached or least reached. When we say unreached or least reached, what we mean are there's less than 5% that call themselves Christian. But really, it's only about 2% that we would even classify as being evangelical Bible-believing. And within that 2%, it's probably even less than that. As we think about the unreached, let's take a look at this map. I think visuals can be helpful. Uh, yep, there we go. All right, so 2.9 billion people unreached. That map was actually made, let me see my pointer here. There we go. This was made in 2016. That number is now up to 3.4 billion. The task is growing. The concentration of peoples is where? Right there in what we call the 1040 window. That is the place from North Africa, across Sub-Saharan Africa, into the Middle East, into Central Asia, down to South Asia, people with little to no access to the gospel. Within this unreached group, the people groups that are unreached are also hyper-located in this 1040 window. Take a look at this next map. And again, you can see the concentration of people groups, unreached people groups from North Africa to Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Egypt, to Israel, to the Levant, to Iraq, Iran, to the Uzbekistans and Tajikistans and India and Bangladesh and Pakistan and Thailand and Myanmar and over to China and all the way over to Japan. So we have a great need of places where the glory of God has yet to shine. Let's look at this visually and contrast the American people group with maybe an unreached people group. The American people group, you can see really this, the green represents Christians. We're a pretty saturated culture. Now, are there still unbelievers here? And are there a great many? Yes. But the fact is, is that Christian normalcy and the opportunity to hear the gospel is vast. Let's go to the next slide and look at an unreached people group. Now, this illustrates where you have a group, maybe a gathering, a church. They have a unique fellowship and then maybe some isolated believers here and there. But they do not have the resources nor the capability to evangelize their own people. There's a great need. And by the way, that slide is just for your benefit because actually the statistics are much greater. There are places in India and South Asia where there's one green person for every 500,000 unreached. One for every 500, that's you for Lynchburg, Roanoke, Charlottesville, and beyond. 
You are called to proclaim the excellencies of who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, but the darkness is great. And as we look across the world, again, that same 1040 window, we see that there are Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. As we look at this next slide, you can see the breakdown of where they're located. You can see the need. And as you go into these places, guess what? Many of them don't want you to come. So, let's go to the next slide. We can see the concentration of where missionaries are located and where they're not. See that 1040? The majority in concentration. The majority of global workers in the United States and South America and Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, and please don't misunderstand me. Praise God for those serving there. There's different needs there as well. But we a heritage have focused our efforts in that 1040 window. Why? Because the need is great and few there be that go. Why do they not go? Let's go to the next slide. This shows the persecution index. The most persecuted countries in the world lie in that 1040 window where there are the fewest amount of Christians, where there are the fewest amount number of missionaries. These are places where it is not easy to be a believer, where few there be that go, where there's great cost with being a Christian. We refer to these countries as closed access nations, for indeed they are. You cannot just go in openly and share Christ. But I would also argue there is no such thing as a closed nation. There are just simply nations you can't get back out of. You can get in. We just can't guarantee you'll get back out. Will you bear the glory of God into Jerusalem and into Rome, knowing that as the Apostle Paul did, I know what awaits me, bonds and suffering for Christ. I'm going to get in, but I have no guarantee I'll get out. Or is the glory bearing only if I have the rest and the escape? Don't misunderstand me again. We need rhythms and we need hopefully healthy ways to be able to run the race long. But in the end, are you willing to bear the glory of God even if it requires everything that you have? Because that's where the need is. That's where the glory of Christ has yet to shine. Now, there's a movement in modern day missions that says, you know what, church, the world is going on. The epicenter of Christianity has shifted. And in fact, it has. Therefore, they say, you know what we need to do? Pray and send your money. We don't need to go. Because they can do a lot better than we can. Brothers and sisters, that is demonic thinking. Here's why. Here's what I hear. And this, this, this thought is not totally original with me. But when I hear pray and send your money, but not willing to go. You know what I hear? I hear, let them shed their blood. I'm going to stay here. Comfortable. Safe. Let them spill the sacrifice. But one of the reasons it's demonic thinking is because our call to go and to bear the glory of God is bound up in the character and the nature of God. He cannot not do it or it would deny himself. And you as a Christian, it is bound up with your identity. It's not just a good thing to bear the glory of God to the nations. It is your birthright. 
And to not live out that birthright to say, you know what, it's not as efficient, so I'm not going to go, is to deny a core part of your identity. Every single one of us are glory bearers. Whether to call to go locally or globally, we are all glory bearers of Christ. All glory is to him. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. There's a spiritual war raging. Many of the places and the peoples don't want you to come. They don't want us to go. But will we go? Will we bear the glory of God? Because people need to hear about it. They need to hear this perfect God who sent his son to die for them. This is the God who does not share his glory. Or does he? Does this God share his glory? You know what's amazing? Absolutely stunning. This is the God who shares his glory with no one. He is perfect and he stands alone. But after Jesus died on the cross, he opened up a path so that in John 17, when Jesus is praying for you and for me, he says, Father, I pray that my glory and our glory would also be theirs. We don't become God, but here's what's going on. God came in to share his glory and that through his son, those who believe in the son and are placed within the son now get to partake and to taste and to see and to experience the glory of God that at one time kept even Moses himself on the outside of the cloud that descended upon Sinai. And we have this glorious message to go to the nations and say there's this God who shares his glory with no one, but in his son, he wants to share it with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to see him. He wants you to walk into the very place of holiness so that you can call God himself Abba, Father. From Old Testament to New Testament, what do we see? God desires to share his glory. He wants to share it and we share in it through faith. And now he has raised up past Israel to be the instrument of his glory. And now, church, he has raised you up to the instruments of his blessing, to be the instruments of his praise, so that the nations may know that there is no God like Yahweh. We are all glory bearers. Will you bear his glory? Will you be obedient and radiate that which Christ has made you? Will you be true to your nature in Christ? Or will you say, ah, that's not important? Well, praise God, God did not say to us, that's not important. But that he saved one like us. Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that all of us would wrestle deeply this week, even as we come back next week and continue this conversation. May we wrestle deeply with how are we to be glory bearers in Lynchburg, in Virginia, and unto the nations. You are worthy. And in Christ, we get to share in mysteries and glories that we never thought possible.
You want to bring in the Egyptians, the Assyrians. You want to draw in the Israelites and the Gentiles, the Arabians, the Parthians, the Medes. You want to draw in peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation because you are way too glorious and too beautiful and too majestic to be worshiped by only one. May we demonstrate and display your glory and consider it of supreme value above anything in this world that we have to offer. We pray that even as we come back next week that you would unleash your church to bear your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,